The Funambulist Podcast by Léopold Lambert. Today, the politics of pharmacy gassy in Madagascar with Chanel Adams. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Chanel Adams, uh, who's a researcher and a journalist and uh, who works with uh, anything that has to do with uh, feminist epistemology and social justice and that I, I, got to, um, I got to encounter, the, whose work I got to encounter when she was still a student at Brown University and uh, one of the editors of uh, this uh, great publication called Blue Stockings. Um, and uh, today we are going to talk about uh, um, colonialism, uh, knowledge and the multiplicity of knowledge, Madagascar and uh, pharmacy, which we'll learn what it is all about. Uh, hello, Chanel. Hi. <laughs> so thank you for being here today. You uh, you are in Paris for a few days, but uh, not quite from the U.S. You currently live in Marseille. Could you maybe tell us what uh, your work is uh, about when when you're there? Yeah, so I just arrived in Marseille back in September for the scholarly year, where I'm researching the uh, the Marseille Colonial Archives. So there used to be this colonial museum founded in the late 19th century in Marseille that was supposed to put on display all of the the things that were collected and people at times too uh, from the colonies. And so my project is basically looking at uh, medicinal plant specimens or potential medicinal plant specimens the, um, that were collected from Madagascar for possible French applications. And um, I say possible because uh, these plants were seen as potentials and they were observed closely to see if they had any sort of Um, any sort of what they would call active compounds or chemical compounds <clears throat> that would make them useful. So I'm looking at how value and utility was determined uh, of these objects in the French context, knowing that they have uh, they uh, these plants and objects already have value in Madagascar, but they were reinscribed value through colonialism in terms of what uh, what is. Uh, real health knowledge versus what is uh, what was deemed as primitive health knowledge. Well, great because that's that's very much uh, what we're going to talk about <laughs> today. But perhaps in your regarding your own work in a, in a, maybe in the genealogy of, of this current research in a, and uh, taking as a sort of spine of the conversation a paper you've wrote um, when you were still at Brown. Uh, called researching with and through a community of women practitioners of medical botanical knowledge in northern Madagascar, uh, and um, I am I am used not to be very well versed in the topics that I'm asking questions to <laughs> to my guests, but in that case maybe even more so. Even so, I'm gonna I'm gonna use your quotes directly quite often, uh, and actually uh, um, actually. Uh, adopting the, the sort of structure also of this paper uh, that starts before even going into uh, medicinal plants and Madagascar, 
going into um, the production of knowledge and the multiplicity of knowledges. Uh, I think you're you're particularly taking your cue from uh, Linda Tui West Smith in particular, who writes. Science and Scientist belongs to institutions embedded in a global system of imperialism and power, and to which you you say in the text, I take this provocation seriously, <laughs> and uh, and you call for a need you 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 call for a decolonized methodologies rooted in postcolonial thought, as proposed by indigenous scholars and scholars of the global south. Um, that work with uh, I quote cognitive cognitive justice the in the recognition of plur plurality of knowledge. Could you maybe tell us more about um, about this uh, um, uh, this reflection on how we produce knowledge and in which political context and to which political aims uh, before we even uh, talk about this very situated knowledge? Yeah, I think the best way to describe. Uh, my understanding of these concepts is to explain how I even arrived in this, in the middle of all of this. That'd and so, basically, when I first started my undergraduate education, I was in the hard sciences, or what is called the hard sciences, which Donna Haraway makes jokes about all the time, um, as opposed to soft and um, <laughs> really, yeah. Um, so, I was taking these classes that were required, big lecture courses in chemistry and biology, and neuroscience, and I had a lot of questions that uh, that were not really welcome in the classroom, uh, where the idea was you learn all of the rules, you learn how everything works, and then you can ask a question once you sort of level up. And uh, for me, I don't know if it's a, a problem with authority or needing to understand things um, through my own, uh, my own question asking, but that didn't really sit well. <clears throat> And I would have questions about, you know, uh, the movement of molecules. What can we say about uh, social organization? What is the connection? And I was met with, with uh, responses that were like, that's not what we do in here. <laughs> so uh, I started looking around, and I wasn't really sure where my questions belonged. And that's when I first went to Madagascar on a program. Uh, it was a study abroad program on natural resource management and biodiversity. And over the course of this program, I, it became very clear to me that we were learning about, about natural resources being uh, something separate from human interactions as, as something that's valuable uh, only through their utility. And as a way to make sure that my independent research project implicated people. I chose a natural resource that has to do with people, which is uh, medicinal plants. And uh, when I got back to Brown after studying abroad, I couldn't figure out where, I still hadn't chosen a major, I couldn't figure out where my questions about what I had just researched belonged. I had drawn all of these diagrams about how, how uh, plants were moving between a, a rural place and an urban place and trying to figure out all of the people that were, late, were related to different, uh, different parts of this, this commodity chain. But the language I had to talk about it was very based in uh, a very uh, novice understanding of, of economies and markets and, um, and botany. And that's when I ran into uh, my advisor 
Professor Julia Gusto, who, when I talked to her about my project, she immediately said, uh, you need to be in science and technology studies, which is an interdisciplinary program of history of science, philosophy of science, sociology of science. Basically, what I came to understand as a, a group of people who ask questions to people who ask questions to produce knowledge. And to me, that seemed like a uh, a place that not only was uh, more fitting for the questions that I was asking, but also allowed a certain level of creativity in what sort of methodology and approaches you could take because it's a fairly new field. Um, so... I guess at that point um, I started reading more about it and I, I was introduced to this term called cognitive justice, which the first time uh, I heard about it really blew my mind and it's a very simple idea, which is that there's multiple truths that exist in the world at the same time and they can be held, they can be held um, by one society or one person or one institution at the same time. And that one way of knowing uh, usually science with like a capital S uh, has this process of becoming true by invalidating other ways of knowing. Mm. And the the power dynamics that are within that, that uh, understanding of how truth is produced then became very closely tied to the, the journalism work that I was doing uh, with uh, feminism, where there's a certain way of producing knowledge in terms of experience or tacit knowledge uh, or embodied knowledge that becomes invalidated because it can't be proven by a system of a system of thought that has a um, that has a methodology that if your if your data doesn't fit into that methodology, it doesn't become true, right? And so. I started seeing uh, connections between multiple questions that I had swirling around, uh, which consolidated into this idea of cognitive justice, uh, feminist epistemology, or the way uh, knowledge is produced in feminism, uh, which incorporates things that are not only um, that are not only based in in um, science, although a lot of it also is based in science. Um, and there, this book that I read at the time, it's an anthology called Another Knowledge is Possible, was really important to that, that drawing those connections for me, uh, where it, it explores themes of cognitive justice, and uh, there was a chapter actually on uh, medicinal plant knowledge. So at that point I felt, okay, maybe I'm landing in the right place because these are uh, the questions that I... Uh, that I'm trying to sort out because I had just gotten back from Madagascar with all this data I'd collected, but I didn't really know what to do with it. I didn't know how to present it, how to talk about it, uh, or what really my findings were. And at that point, I became kind of uh, obsessed with methodology to try and figure out, first of all, what had I, what had I researched when I was in Madagascar, and given the opportunity to go back, which I had the incredible um, opportunity to receive funding to return to Madagascar uh, to the same 
to the same medicinal plant market that I was working in. Um, and that time I wanted to be more prepared for what I was going to do. And it wasn't um, so much a, a, a walking into something that I knew nothing about, but I wanted to come back and sort of feel more like I had tools to really work with, uh, work with the ideas that I had been reading about in terms of knowledge production and, uh, and, uh, and feminist uh, epistemologies. So I, I spent a lot of time basically coming to a dead end in terms of how do you present knowledge in a way that's legible to the academy if the form of knowledge that you're working with is subaltern? And what does it mean to, to only validate something that you learn by superimposing it on something that already exists? So there's this study that's pretty well known in anthropology by this guy whose name is, is, uh, is humorously enough, good enough is his last name. <laughs> and basically what he did is he studied uh, different... Uh, he, he studied a group of people that navigate through Micronesia by using the sky. And he was really impressed by the way people could figure out where they were and find these islands in the middle of the night without actually seeing where the islands were that they were going to. And at the end of the study, he draws a sort of uh, schematic view of what he, what he understands the people that he was working with to be navigating. And he superimposes it over a compass rose, and he says, look, they're right, exactly what they're doing fits with the compass rose, therefore this is um, a, a primitive technique that's, that's uh, ahead of its time. <laughs> and so the idea there is that it, it, it only becomes true because it, it validates something that already makes sense to a certain person. Uh, and so I knew that that wasn't what I wanted to do with my research. That was a, a good example of what to stay away from. And um, it was really helpful to read more about uh, indigenous and native scholarship because oftentimes communities that have been abused by the academy, abused by researchers in terms of exploited um, or extracted um, or have been extracted from in terms of knowledge or culture or appropriated, that often people who belong to those communities have a pretty good sense of what, uh, what researchers should avoid uh, in the future. And especially those, um, those of us caught up in researching while we also hold marginalized positions, thinking about what does it mean to be both inside the academy where there's a, a long history of exploitation and also belong to uh, communities that have been exploited by these institutions. And so a lot of uh, really great work by Linda Smith that you mentioned um, in her book, Decolonizing Methodologies, uh, along with um, Dwayne Donald and Sean Wilson, thinking about research as, as ceremony uh, and thinking about the importance of narrativizing and story work in, in collecting data. <clears throat> And really uh, complicating the idea of what uh, what a finding is, in terms of uh, the moment that something becomes a, a finding, it can it can be, become extracted because it, you've contained it, you've drawn a circle around it, and it's uh, it's exportable. Whereas thinking about something always in process, 
um, and and complicating clean narratives is always helpful in terms of of bringing another way of knowing to the table uh, that's that's often seen as a messy process, but I think that it's a creative uh, or it's a productive messiness that that calls into question uh, the way that the the dominant uh, hegemonic ways of producing knowledge demand. Hmm. Uh, perhaps to stay for a few more minutes in this uh, in this uh, deconstruction of methodologies, uh, something that I wanted to ask you, but I think you already answer, answered it at least in filigree, if I may say, uh, which is which has to do with the author of this text, which is Chanel Dams, comma an outsider. <laughs> <laughs> would, you, would you mind telling us? Uh, how this notion of outsider uh, is so strong in your own methodology that it becomes uh, the your main qualification as the author of the paper? <laughs> yeah, so I was really... Uh, uh, a foundational text in my work is uh, Patricia Hill Collins' uh, <laughs> uh, sociology work uh, on the outsider within, or the, the, uh, the idea that Uh, especially being a black woman in the academy, uh, you are an outsider when you're in the academy, and then within your own communities, you are also an outsider because you belong to this institution um, that, as I have mentioned, has caused so much uh, harm to the communities that we come from. So thinking about the idea of always being an outsider, um, not necessarily as a... A setback, but as an opportunity to see things from multiple perspectives. So the idea of a plurality of knowledges is really embodied by people who, who hold these border, these border positions. Uh, and so to me, it was important to, to declare this outsider status, because thinking about uh, feminist standpoint epistemology, uh, which was brought forth by Sandra Harding, and the the way that declaring where we are coming from in terms of our approach uh, is something that we often don't do in the academy for the uh, for the purpose of, of appearing objective, we erase who we are. And uh, combining these ideas of Harding and Hill Collins thinking about that actually it's a strength to talk about exactly where you're coming from and Uh, questioning how that how that alters the form of knowledge that you're producing, or uh, how how your specific life experiences and positions in society are, of course, going to influence how you see the world and also see your research, especially research that implies uh, working with other people or producing something um, that we would call the truth if you're working in in sciences. Uh, yeah, and I think you, you you cited two poles of outsiderness, if I may say. <laughs> uh, but I suppose there might be a third one with Madagascar well, yeah. itself, right? Right, so applied to my own research, uh, I was really mindful of the idea that while, I, while in the United States I hold a position of being a black woman in the academy, which is not... Um, which is on the lower end of the, of the power spectrum. When I go to Madagascar, I'm someone from the U.S., 
and I have all of this institutional privilege and I become an outsider in a different way. And thinking about how that, uh, while a lot of the, the women, it was mostly women who were selling medicinal plants that I work with, uh, insisted that I am Malagasy because I actually do really resemble Malagasy people. It was important for me to always be clear that that is not, uh, at least that I know of, any sort of heritage that I have. And uh, especially with the subject of, of health and medicinal plant knowledge, which also goes into the ancestral realm, and, um, and there are some healers that call spirits, thinking about that there are some things that you don't tell an outsider. And I was not interested in tricking anybody to telling me something that they would not want to leave their community. Um, I know that there, uh, there's been a history of anthropologists uh, cozying up to people in order to extract knowledge, and I wanted to be very clear throughout the process that that um, of my outsider status so that I would not be in a, in a position where, um, where somebody might share something with me uh, with, with, uh, without knowing. Mm. Well, I think that's probably the, the, right, uh, the right segue to actually really um, 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 address Madagascar itself. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, that's, there's always something problematic about asking the next question, which is that um, uh, maybe if you could tell us a little bit uh, about the historical context of Madagascar, because if we were doing something about the UK, we would not really remind what were the two last hundred years of history of the UK. <laughs> we would assume it for granted, but, um, but for the purpose of good understanding of what we're going to converse next, would you, would you mind maybe doing this problematic assignment. Yeah, of course. I'm, I'm actually pretty used to answering this question. Um, not, that, not because I'm an expert in um, Madagascar history, but because uh, a lot of people have never had any sort of, especially from the U.S., any sort of contact with Madagascar in any significant way. Um, we're not taught about it in school, and, and I think um, many people don't even know exactly where it is on a map. <laughs> uh, so... I don't. Th I don't think it would be that different in France. When actually, <laughs> yeah, well, France would have even more reasons to know much more about Madagascar history. Yeah, France has a, a a different connection to to Madagascar than the United States, but I'm not sure which. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, so usually, uh, I s when I answer this question, I I enter it by talking about how this animated movie came out, which I think has a different name in France. I think it's called The Penguins of Madagascar, but in the United States, uh, it's just called Madagascar. So thinking about how can a f an animated film come out with the name of an entire country without any people in the movie happen, right? There's no animated movie called Mexico with no people in it. Right, and so thinking about the 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 way that the ignorance about Mal Madagascar or the the agnotology of it has has made it possible for these sorts of mythical narratives to take place, and it's actually very suiting because Madagascar has a lot of uh, both true and untrue travel literature that was written about um, in the 
in the 19th century, people who uh, wrote back, there was a, a genre of travel fiction, of exotic travels and in faraway places where uh, anything could happen. There would be cannibals and shipwrecks and pirates. And so Madagascar has always been this sort of mythical land where the, the privilege of it being isolated, an island that's been uh, that uh, detached from continental Africa and India a long, long time ago. Uh, and the the so the geographic isolation of Madagascar and also the um, the uh, the limited knowledge about where the people have come from and their history makes it makes it really possible for people to project whatever they want on on the country. Um, so Madagascar uh, has. It's not entirely clear when people arrived and from where, but there are uh, people living throughout the entire island. Um, and there were a couple of uh, kingdoms that were uh, that were coexisting. And eventually, as time went on, uh, one kingdom sort of rose into power and with the help of the French uh, colonized the rest of the island. Um, after, uh, uh, and so also this is to say that a lot of my, the history that I have of Madagascar is, uh, starts with colonialism and that is not at all where history begins and I don't want to pretend that is, but, um, in terms of, uh, what I have as a historical no, I think you talk about the continental drift, so you definitely yeah. went back to the very <laughs> Geological time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, and um, so Madagascar was colonized by uh, the French in 1896 and before that there was a um, a lot of British interest in Madagascar and eventually um, eventually France sort of tricked uh, the prime minister into uh, into colonization <laughs> in brief Uh, and so for the next uh, 40 or 50 years, uh, we saw, you know, the effects of extraction and, and, um, and wars. And there was actually a war um, fought in Madagascar uh, between the Japanese and the French and British because it's, it's a strategic island in terms of uh, controlling the Indian Ocean. So there was a war fought there that had nothing to do with the Malagasy people. Um, and... Then in the f in the late 40s, there was uh, a rebellion, and that started the decolonization movement in Madagascar, uh, which did not officially become independent in the, until the 60s. And there's this story uh, about how there was a speech about uh, the, the potential for Madagascar to become liberated, and uh, at that point, it was not technically true, but everybody heard that, that uh, they had received independence. And so from that moment on, they were independent, even though the processes didn't take place until shortly after. Um, so I think part of that also really captures uh, the Malagasy spirit, um, where, a f uh, for example, David Graeber has written a lot of... Uh, a lot of work on Madagascar and the way that the state functions in relation to the people, where the people, um, especially outside of the capital city, which is 
which is where most of the power and resources and, and money are held. Uh, they listen to the, the politicians, they nod, and then they turn around and they do you know, what they were going to do anyway, uh, which I always really appreciate. Um, and so then after uh, decolonization, like a, we're in the process of decolonization, it's never really complete, is it? Um, the Madagascar, like many other uh, countries, decided to uh, become socialist and sort of close their doors to uh, rising global capitalism. And um, as a result, Madagascar suffered pretty, pretty um, severely with lots of... Uh, lots of famine and, um, and poverty. And by the time that they became, um, became open again, I guess, to free market, uh, they had kind of a lot to catch up on, or as, as the development di- um, language kind of uh, refers to as catching up on, um, uh, in terms of their economy. And so since... Uh, since then, they uh, had a political coup in the in um, the early two thousands and had an official uh, internationally watched election in two thousand thirteen, and um, until now they have uh, this new president. Um, and so you were you were aiming at at saying that the decolonization process did not fully take place, which I no. think is always is always the case, obviously, but. One particular aspect of your text that may indicate some uh, new mutations of, of forms of colonialism has to do with the notion of environ- environmentalism uh, and how uh, such a concept that I'm not going to repeat because clearly I'm having trouble saying it. <laughs> uh, uh, how this concept uh, and this ideology um is really uh, brought from the West uh, and imposed uh, imposed as some sort of universal truth again, like the sort of mono mono knowledge uh, uh, that you were talking about earlier, um, and uh, and to a point to a point where where Madagascar would need to be saved from its own from its own populations doing. Uh, could you could you tell us about that? Yeah, so so part of uh, what I was alluding to before was talking about how this film called Madagascar was able to exist um, about a country being sort of this this really uh, wild place of nature where there are no people uh, is one narrative, and the other narrative is that the people are completely destroying the country. So there's either no people or there's destructive people. Um, and uh, I sort of enter the conversation... Uh, with with the anthropological work that I did, that maybe there are just there are people and that they're living there. That's which which seems like a, a very uh, modest claim to make, but it's really difficult to sort through um, all of these discourses to just uh, talk about people existing. Um, so the idea of Madagascar as this uh, biological hot uh, biodiversity hotspot. Um, serves as a way to to really highlight the natural resources that Madagascar has and also is a rallying call to protect these resources. So the, I mean, even Charles Darwin wrote about um, Madagascar as this sort of mystical place where um, the famous the famous writings about how uh, a certain flower that had a very, uh, that was 
the the flower itself was really deep must have a specific moth or bird that can reach into the flower and the way that that uh, species developed uh, really uniquely in Madagascar, um, which makes it in this increasing um, moment of, of of natural disasters and climate change and um, and loss of and um, and a, and the rhetoric of scarcity of resources makes Madagascar sort of one of the last frontiers of of nature that needs to the, that needs uh, vanguards to protect it. So uh, a really telling st- story about this is the fact that, or the non-fact, that Madagascar has been 90% deforested, which is something that starts any article, whether it's uh, pop science, an official scientific article, um, uh, any sort of literature about Madagascar, you see 90% has been, well, first you see it's a biodiversity hotspot, and then the next part says that 90% has been deforested which uh, is something that is based off of a study uh, done by Pierre de, de la Bathy, who was a French botanist who used sort of shoddy aerial photographs um, to declare that Madagascar used to be entirely covered by trees, which ecologically doesn't make sense for, um, for the landscape. And therefore, what was left doing the math meant that 90% had already been destroyed, um, which is interesting considering that that didn't factor in the French um, logging and timber industry that must have contributed to that 90%. Um, but that part of the narrative hasn't really stuck, and the, the part that has is that the people, especially through what globally is demonized as slash-and-burn agriculture, uh, is the, the, the leading cause of this deforestation. Um, I feel like I lost the question. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I suppose uh, I suppose it was uh, it was in aiming at showing the continu- the continuum of colonialism. Uh, oh right. Um, uh, under other forms, maybe, or under slightly mutated forms. Yeah. So, um, like uh, like science or conservationism as as a branch of of science. Um, It's deeply tied to moral judgments and moral values, and um, in this way, it's really it's really easy through the narrative of protecting resources to demonize people for not using them appropriately or knowing their true value. Uh, and um, in this sense, a lot of the the conservation rhetoric that I see about Madagascar says that the people do not know either the real value of the resources or the people are not adequately handling these resources. And therefore, uh, in, in this uh, crusade for world heritage and world green space, uh, conservationists need to come in and take control of, of the land and territories, which um, if you compare that to the rhetoric of um, French colonialism of Madagascar, it's strikingly similar in terms of uh, of people being uh, being people's relationship to the land and the resources uh, being written off as inappropriate or um, infantile. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the comparison is uh, uncanny. And I, I wonder if it might not be actually some uh, retroactive justification of colonialism rather than some actual uh, uh, actual claims made in the early 19th century, which was clearly aiming for resources itself, but somehow had to, just like just like racism, had to be developed in, uh, in a way that would justify all this, uh, uh, but be developed in a... In a in uh, always with various degrees de- degrees of retroactivity, uh, uh, the the same might be true about that as a, as a sort of uh, as a sort of um, a colonial claim on a territory uh, that they that France in that case would already have, but uh, but it, I guess it doesn't really change yeah. anything. But. Well, I mean, also it's it's the same sort of. Um, there's a rhetorical shield around around um, offering a critique because of the moral values imbued in it, whereas uh, the the French colonial missions of civilizing people uh, had a really strong moral tone of uh, benevolence and doing well and protecting people. And um, you see the same kind of rhetorical shield around conservationism in terms of uh, protecting people from themselves or embedding people through uh, exported practices. Um, you, you already suggested it earlier, but um, in this sort of, you, you kind of fix this sort of dichotomy between on the one hand people and on the other hand uh, natural resources by uh, being interested in medication. Uh, and in the text, you you talk about health as ultimately, I, I quote, uh, intimately linked to our social life. Uh, and you say, I believe it is the ideal intersection to examine power, knowledge, and materials. Um, and uh, in the same uh, methodological frameworks that we already talked about at the beginning of this conversation. Um, could you tell us about about this notion of health and uh, and the other notion of pharmacy gassy that uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, is uh, is really at the core of your text? Yeah. So uh, I think another word that that brings together the ideas of power, knowledge, and health is trust, um, because in order to uh, be given a substance that you're going to ingest or inhale or, or rub on your body. Uh, you have to have some sort of faith in where it's coming from uh, in terms of the person that's giving it to you or um, the instructions that are given to you or the location that it's collected from. And so I saw, um, I, I see Pharmacy Gassy, which is basically the, the system of what, what uh, I guess we would categorize as traditional healthcare, although that, that term itself really doesn't uh, work for me because it it situates it situates the the knowledge as something that is static and in the past and hasn't changed. When uh, of course in in the medicinal plant marketplace you have uh, treatments for for things like cancer or HIV/AIDS um, uh, to to call attention to the co-contemporaneity of uh, these knowledge practices. I think traditional doesn't really uh, do it justice. Um, and so I saw Pharmacy Gassy as a place of, of examining the, the idea that, first of all, a market is already uh, occurring in Madagascar for these items. So the, the idea that 
for um, for essential oils or or teas to have any sort of value, they have to be exported into the international market where the true value is known. Uh, so to complicate that narrative, uh, thinking about power and knowledge production, it was important to me to situate uh, the fact that there already is a market uh, of exchange and valuing taking place in Madagascar, which of course isn't really a uh, a huge claim to make, but for a community of people that are that um, are internationally not considered as as existing um, in their own landscape, that that is a an important narrative I think to to uh, to put forth. Um, and so, in my research, I was really interested in seeing how. Uh, different relationships formed uh, this market economy between, uh, as I was saying earlier, a, a rural area where uh, there's actually a, a huge mountain that uh, in, in botany uh, and ecosystems, we see that as there are um, changes in elevation, the diversity of plants uh, dramatically changes. So in this landscape, there's many, many medicinal plants that can't grow in the middle of uh, this city, which is very dry um, and doesn't have the same kind of uh, ecosystem that affords for uh, for the same amount of plant diversity, so thinking about how uh, does the re- the relationship between um, the the distance between where the plants are coming from and uh, the person who is uh, is a patient uh, change in terms of uh, the value of the plants themselves or the relationships that are required in order uh, in order to trust that the that uh, the medicine will work and so I'm, I'm really focusing on the idea of trust because um, as we know a lot of health and healing is related to relationships and whether or not you have faith that the medicine or the the uh, the knowledge system from which the medicine comes from is valid um, in terms of thinking about homeopathy uh, and massage and acupuncture, these are all very, uh, very present parts of uh, of the the conversation. And, and I would also argue, in terms of pharmaceuticals, there's also faith in seeing uh, somebody walk into uh, walk into the room wearing a white coat uh, and while you're sitting in a certain way on a certain sort of table. The the rituals of healing. Um, are, are really important to healing itself. And so I was looking at ways to document what, uh, what that looks like in, in um, this specific area. Uh, what does pharmaceutical uh, uh mean in terms of relationships between clients, uh, healers, plant collectors, and vendors? And uh, I saw a lot of really uh, different constellations of relationships and people making sense of how, uh, and people making sense of how they relate to the different aspects of uh, that constellation. Um, I'm sorry because it's going to be kind of a surprise question here, but you 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 uh, definitely uh, got me intrigued when starting to talk about the chair and the white coats and yeah. this kind of thing. Could, would you, would, do, you, do you have a sort of architectural or spatial reading of this ritual by any chance that 
uh, <laughs> that, as you know, I would obviously be very interested in, but I mean, maybe, yeah. maybe not that. Well, I mean, the, the classic would be like the birth of the clinic or thinking about um, how, uh, how we prepare for, for healing or how we think about entering a space where we're, we have an expectation of being healed. Um, and, and there's a bunch of studies that are coming out about, um, about even for things that people know are placebos, uh, still working because they believe that it's, that it's going to work. And so I'm sure the, the spatial dynamics of, of, uh, that sort of are, are built around these relationships to our providers and clients has a, has a role in it. But, but in the context of pharmacy, I guess, I mean, yeah. yeah, um, so the the marketplace that I was focused on is in is sort of off the the. It's it's not in the main marketplace. You have to go and seek it out, and the the same women are there every single day with the same stands, and and um, people know where they are, and they know um, if they need something, where to go, and uh, even though the 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 different stands are selling more or less the exact same thing. Uh, clients typically have a specific vendor that they like to go to. Um, and the, the um, healers, <clears throat> the traditional healers, um, notably the Ombiasa, typically have um, or host clients within their homes uh, where you go inside and um, the door is closed and, and you sit down and there's a certain ritual around um, what to expect in terms of uh, in terms of the sort of uh, enclosure and also uh, privacy of of um, that interaction. Where uh, I see as I mean it's it's evident I see health and healing as as very social, and um, there are many healers that I encountered that are not only concerned with whether or not you have a headache or um, or you have a fertility concern, but also questions about your family life and um, and your fortune, your good fortune or bad fortune, and your your work life, where the sort of exchanges are not only um, what we would define as physical, but but um, also the social realm. Um. Perhaps the last question will be directed at the contradiction you point, you point out in your research, which is uh, uh, going back to the sort of uh, uh, imperialist claim, which is this contradiction between the, the complete dismissal of any uh, any uh, knowledge or, in that case, any any medicine that is not uh, the, the M-capital Western medicine, but on the other hand, uh, uh, the the use of the the use of those same plants for uh, the Western uh, pharmaceutical industry. Uh, uh, so could you could you maybe address this uh, this sort of contradiction that says a lot again about about imperialism? <laughs> yeah, I think um, there there are a couple of statistics, and I'm and I'm not really sure how uh, this. This data was collected, but the the World Health Organization says that eighty percent of our pharmaceuticals come from uh, come from plants. Mm. Um, which I mean, even if that's a 
even if that's uh, shooting kind of high, it still is a testament to the fact that a lot of uh, the medicines that we take were originally in a sort, some sort of plant form that has since been synthesized in a laboratory where the, the, what they call the active compounds of the plant are, are then uh, put into uh, pill form. And uh, I think this, this is sort of a common thread into my research uh, now where I'm thinking about what does it mean to take only part of a knowledge system and, and claim it as valuable or useful or applicable um, and to dispose of the rest of it. So if there's an active compound in the leaf of a plant and then the rest of the plant is disposed along with the, um, the social relationships around how that plant is used or um, in context or cultivated. Uh, because in, in, um, in the sense of uh, pharmaceuticals, the, the plant it becomes obsolete. It's no longer needed once the, the compound is extracted and reproducible without it. Uh, and... So a lot of what I'm thinking about now is how how are these materials read for their their application. So if uh, if a plant is taken completely out of its context, uh, it already loses perhaps some of these social functions that I was talking about in terms of the the importance of uh, knowing where it comes from, knowing the person who's prescribing it to you. Um, and having that exchange uh, for the organic material with somebody that uh, that you know or maybe your family has known for a really long time, um, and uh, especially in the in the era that I'm studying now, thinking about uh, in the the 19th century, where especially in science, the the sense of vision was really prioritized. So uh, these plants were, were taken from long distances and then held up under a microscope and looked at as closely as possible for what their uh, applications were as if they could be seen. Whereas in my understanding of um, a lot of the healers that I worked with in Madagascar, the, the power of the plant comes from uh, what you can't see and what it does to you um, in the ancestral realm or within your body, but it's not anything you can see. It you you feel it, um, and even these these specimens that were sent back to Marseille uh, no longer have color. They no longer have smell. Um, they no longer have taste. So thinking about the the privileging of certain senses already to me uh, seems like a way of discrediting certain ways of knowing in, in service of a, of a singular vision of what makes, what makes something valuable. All right. Well, <laughs> this is, uh, I guess we should, uh, we should insist once again, that this is still, uh, an ongoing research yeah. as you, <laughs> you, you currently are in Marseille precisely where you ended, uh, we, we ended where we started. So that's perfect. Uh, great. Well, thank you so much, Chanel. And, uh, and uh, maybe we'll do an episode two, uh, a little bit, uh, a little bit downstream of your of your research. And thanks. <laughs> Thank you.